The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from James Bartholomew on how taking in a Ukrainian refugee has improved his social clout, Freddie Gray on the Republican fight against Disney, and Kate Andrews on overcoming her arachnophobia. First up, James Bartholomew. Refugee status. The social cachet of taking in Ukrainians. I have temporarily taken in two Ukrainian refugees and suddenly find, for very little sacrifice, that my stock has soared. People who have regarded me as a hard-nosed right-wing bastard are suddenly confused and struggling to readjust. A woke young relative who has despised and despaired of my ignorant reactionary views on Black Lives Matter, climate change, gender and so on suddenly sees a halo above my head. My mother-in-law on the Costa Brava reports that mentioning that her daughter and son-in-law have Ukrainian refugees is like being sprinkled with gold dust. Her social circle is in awe. Never have I received so much praise for doing hardly anything at all. It started when I dropped in to the Ukrainian Social Club in Holland Park Avenue and said I'd be willing to take in a refugee mother and child for a month. I had read how bureaucratic the government scheme was and reckoned there might be some refugees already in the UK needing accommodation right now. I left my name and contact details feeling mildly heroic and expecting to hear no more about it. To my astonishment, two days later, I got a telephone call from someone calling herself Tatiana, saying that she was from the social club and had got a mother and child who needed somewhere to stay. A few days after that, Nadia and Antonina were installed in the former bedrooms of my grown-up daughters. I sternly made it clear to them and everybody else who would listen they were only going to stay for a month, but it turns out it'll actually be for seven weeks. Yet that is no burden. They are so nice, so eager to please and helpful that they are more of an asset than a burden. My wife has announced that she is going to cry when they go and that they feel like part of the family. Nadia regularly makes us variniki, which are similar to Polish pierogi and have a more distant resemblance to ravioli. But these homemade variniki are far more delicious than anything of that sort that I have had before. Nadia is an artist, and I suggested that perhaps, although it was beneath her level, she might repaint the garden furniture and I could pay her some cash, which surely must be much needed. She jumped at the chance to do the painting, but has refused to accept a penny for her work, so I'm inadvertently getting a free paint job. It turns out she's also a keen gardener. I am quite controlling about my patches of garden, which I maintain in a formal, low-maintenance, almost monochrome green. But I came home one day to find pink annuals dotted about the place. I'm struggling to channel her gardening passion, but my wife is thrilled with a sudden influx of bright colours. I'm beginning to think they're ganging up on me, but it's wholly bearable and secretly rather fun. 
We have been in touch with various friends and friends of friends to find people who might take Nadia and Antonina after us, either for just a month or longer. Fortunately, two households have come up trumps. There is even a hint of rivalry between them to secure these prized guests. The only thing I have gone out of my way to do has been to help them find a suitable school or university for Antonina. She is 16, going on 17 in the summer, and in the Ukrainian system would be going to university in September. So she is betwixt and between sixth form level and university level. What makes this easier that she is exceptionally clever, so any school or university in its right mind would be thrilled to get her. She has won prizes that are open to all Ukrainian students of her age in English, Chinese and physics. She speaks Ukrainian and Russian fluently and speaks English and Mandarin well. I asked them who is the most celebrated Ukrainian author. They told me it was Taras Shevchenko. A few days later, Antonina let me know she had just created an English-language website called 11 Ukrainian Literary Classics You Must Read. It really is an education and a pleasure to have them. And it's a bonus that various people who have disagreed with me, despised me and argued with me over the years suddenly think there is some good in me after all. In fact, it is wider than that. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has made many people, from both left and right, recall that the things they disagree about are less important than the values they share. A belief in democracy, the right to national self-determination, freedom of the press and an open society. Yes, our society is not as free and open as it once was, but it's a great deal freer than that of Russia or the society which Russia is seeking to impose by force on Ukraine. Meanwhile, while I bask in undeserved praise, we all know who the real heroes are. They are the people fighting against the Russian invaders, holed up in basements with their food running out, or living on the front line in Spartan conditions, risking their lives every day. Men like Nadia's former partner, her brother and her son. That was James Bartholomew. Next it's Freddie Gray. Taking the Mickey, how Disney fell foul of Florida's governor. Bob Chapek, Disney's CEO, was paid $32.5 million last year. It's hard to feel sorry for someone on that sort of money. Poor Bob, though. He's been caught in the middle of a vicious fight between Florida's Conservative Governor Ron DeSantis and Disney's LGBTQ plus activists. And he's being pummeled from both sides. It's nasty. Children probably shouldn't watch. The story begins with DeSantis's Florida Parental Rights in Education Act, which passed in March and banned Floridian school teachers from discussing sexuality and mutable gender identities with very young children. America's progressives despise DeSantis, and, it seems, the notion that parents should have more control about what their sprogs are told about sex. They successfully dubbed the legislation the Don't Say Gay Bill, even though it does not forbid saying the word gay. Hollywood celebrities and talking heads on corporate media went to great lengths to denounce the bill, which worked a treat for DeSantis, because the law passed and the public enjoyed watching the impotent fury of the rich and famous. A polling company found that, quotes. Fully two-thirds of voters believe it is inappropriate for teachers or school personnel to discuss gender identity with children. Most Democrats in Florida supported the law too, 
But Bob Iger, Disney's former chief wizard, had other ideas. Iger doesn't get on with Chapik, the man who replaced him. The two appear to have fallen out over mysterious Disney matters during the Covid pandemic. Iger, concerned only about the innocence of youth, no doubt, went on Twitter and CNN to say that he believed the Florida law to be harmful to children. Sure enough, his intervention put pressure on his successor to condemn DeSantis's wicked new legislation. Chapek resisted. Corporate statements do very little to change outcomes or minds, he wrote in a memo. Disney's LGBTQ plus employees, there are a few of them, objected. The current CEO soon found himself apologising before a town hall meeting of disgruntled staff. Looking not unlike a hostage in a video, Chapek pledged to be a better ally for the LGBTQ plus community and apologised for not being the ally that you needed me to be. As penance, he decreed that Walt Disney Corp's goal as a company is for this law to be repealed by the legislature or struck down in the courts, and we remain committed to supporting the national and state organisations working to achieve that. DeSantis took that statement as a declaration of legislative war, and he struck back hard. He passed another law to terminate Disney World's special district status in the state of Florida. This status saves the company tens of millions of dollars in tax every year and gives the theme park powers to operate as if it really were its own ridiculously huge magical kingdom. On the floor of the state legislature, Democrats howled in pain as the vote sailed through. Their anguish thrilled radical Republicans and DeSantis fans. Hyperwoke Disney had challenged America's ascendant new right and the big corporation had been socked in its evil fat mouth. Winning. DeSantis has been called Trump 2.0, and clearly he has modelled his leadership style on America's last president. There is a key difference, however. Trump tended to keep the world guessing as to whether he had any idea what he was doing. DeSantis, by contrast, is Harvard-educated, data-driven, strategic. When he makes the left squeal, everybody can tell he knows exactly what he's up to. In targeting Disney's so aggressively he cleverly exposed the hypocrisy of his opponents. The American left is meant to oppose big business and tax dodging. Yet as DeSantis pushed through a law stripping a megacorporation of the mechanism through which it dodges tax, Democrats suddenly cried foul. Progressives started to impersonate Mitt Romney and the Republican Party of the past two decades as they harumphed about how Floridians would end up having to pay the bill. Lefty websites suddenly rediscovered their love of free speech, insisting that America's First Amendment protected Disney's right to oppose DeSantis. Republican radicals find all this whining hilarious. Shut up, losers. The whole episode puts America's new right back in exactly the populist place it wants to be, against woke ink and on the side of the common people. Republican governors have figured out that in order to thrive, they must show themselves willing to take on the most powerful institutions. The trick is to advance laws that sound sensible to voters while driving the pundit class crazy. Last year, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia passed an Election Integrity Act which added identification requirements to mail-in ballots and tightened voting procedures. These not unreasonable measures made the Democrats strangely furious. President Joe Biden said, absurdly, that the new law was a return to the racist era of Jim Crow. Major League Baseball decided it had to demonstrate our values by withdrawing its all-star game from the state. But Kemp's popularity grew. DeSantis has mastered this provocative art. 
He was accused of mass murder when he removed COVID mask mandates and opened up his state ahead of others. But Florida's economy blossomed and he reaped the benefits. As part of his anti-riot bill, he proposed civil immunity for drivers who rammed their cars into protesters and racketeering charges for organisers of peaceful protests that turned violent. He is expected to win re-election easily later this year. After Trump, he's the favourite to win the Republican Party's nomination for the 2024 presidential election. All you need is a little bit of magic, said Mickey Mouse. As ever, he was right. DeSantis's jaw-dropping attack on Disney had a similar quality to Elon Musk's mind-boggling takeover of Twitter this week. Like Musk, DeSantis has that juju of the disruptor. He wins not in spite of the antagonism he provokes, but because of it. He understands that 21st century is not about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's about crushing your enemies and hearing the lamentations of their trans women. You don't know you're on top unless you can feel their pain. Traditional conservatives aren't altogether comfortable with the new incendiary style in right-wing politics. It all feels a bit Jacobin and anti-capitalist. What had distinguished the movement of William F. Buckley, the party of Lincoln, from the left was a desire to be civil and fair. There are many thousands of other special districts across the US. Should state governments feel free to target them all for political reasons? America's new rightists can't bear such genteel arguments. When it comes to sexuality and children, they believe the opposition is demonic and the majority is on their side. Rich guys like Bob Chapek are simply standing in their way. That was Freddie Gray. And finally, Kate Andrews. I've been an arachnophobe my whole life. I can't remember a time when videos of spiders or even photos or drawings didn't give me palpitations. As a kid, Charlotte's Web read a sinister propaganda. Even as an adult, just hearing the word tarantula would make me feel like one was crawling on me. Kind friends and colleagues took to calling it the T-word. I wish I could blame someone for these fears, but no one else in my immediate family screamed uncontrollably when a house spider scuttled across the floor. A fear of spiders is the third most common phobia in the UK, so I know I haven't been alone. But I'd grown increasingly frustrated by my arachnophobia over the years. I'd like to think of myself as a rational person, but that belief is hard to sustain when I'm shrieking in front of my colleagues because I saw an image of a spider on Twitter. I was also tired of being so afraid of something so benign. Last month, after a humiliating encounter with a house spider in my wardrobe, I decided I'd had enough. I signed up to London Zoo's Friendly Spider Program, a half-day course that claims to, quote, ease or eliminate the condition of arachnophobia. I managed perhaps two hours sleep the night before. The lead instructor, Dave, reassured me that the success rate of the program is more than 90%. Success is measured by each participant catching a British house spider in a plastic cup, sliding a piece of paper under the not-so-little guy, and picking it up as if to release it. I told him I couldn't imagine doing much more than screaming and running out of the room. All participants in the course rank their arachnophobia on a scale from 1 to 10. I answered honestly, a 10. We've got a challenge on our hands, Dave said, but he was confident that by the end of the day I'd be able to say the word tarantula. He thought I'd be holding one, too. The course was split into three segments, educational lectures, a group hypnotherapy session with an expert, and then a trip to the Tiny Giants exhibition at the zoo. It was the first course to run since the pandemic, and some participants in our group of 40 had been waiting more than two years for the day to arrive. Even before the first lecture began, a few were crying. Individual versions of the course have been conducted before, but the success rate is higher when it's done in groups. 
I could immediately see why. A camaraderie quickly built among us as we shouted out everything we despised about spiders. Their legs, their movements, their lack of facial features. Their overall evilness received applause. Where do you hate finding them? Inside, shouted one person. Outside, shouted another. We weren't just venting, but undergoing subtle cognitive behavioral therapy intended to bring our fears to the surface and break them down. We learned about our flight, fight, or freeze reactions, which are misplaced animal responses to danger. Misplaced because most spiders you come across won't cause you harm. The palpitations are a result of your heart pumping faster, preparing you to run away. Muscles tighten, causing your hairs on your arms and legs to raise up, creating the sensation that something's crawling on you. How many of you are worriers? Dave asked the group. Nearly everyone raised their hands. It's one of the most common qualities that unites arachnophobes. Demystifying your reactions to spiders, he said, will bring some of those worries to an end. They say knowledge is power, but the CBT and following hypnotherapy session produced something stronger than power. I suspected magic. By the late afternoon, 40 arachnophobes were marching towards the zoo's spider exhibition, armed with relaxation techniques. Deep breaths in, dropping our shoulders, repeating in our heads that we were calm, safe, and at ease in the presence of spiders. Most participants were just about keeping it together as we all arrived at the Tiny Giants exhibition, which had been closed off to the rest of the public. We entered a room in which golden orb spiders, which have legs that span up to five inches, hovered above us in the open. When it came to the next stage, I caught the house spider with relative ease. I even put my hand in a plastic crate and let one crawl over me. I was awarded a certificate for my efforts. I could have ended the course there, with proof that I could now calmly catch a spider, but there was more to come. Our instructor brought out Carol, the friendly Mexican redney tarantula. There was talk of bringing out another Mexican redney, Millie, but Carol was in a, quote, better mood. I decided not to ask what that meant. We took turns holding one of the world's largest spiders in our hands. I hung back and was one of the last to go. Carol and I took it slow. I started by touching one of her back legs, which was silky soft. The tip of one leg was placed in my hand, then two. The feet felt like a sticky cat paw. Then Carol was in my hands, resting gently across my palms. She was extremely light. I had always imagined tarantulas to be weighty things, not remotely. It dawned on me quickly that I was in control. Once everybody had had a turn, I went back to hold Carol again, in a bit to further desensitize myself. I was more relaxed this time round. I left the zoo having downgraded my fear level from a 10 to a 5, an arachnophobe in recovery. If I'm honest with myself, spiders still freak me out, but I'm confident I can deal with my next house spider when I come across it. And I've proven to myself that I can hold a tarantula, although it's fine by me if that's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Perhaps the biggest shock, however, was discovering that my lifelong phobia could be conquered in an afternoon. I had been indulging my fear for far too long. That's easy to do in a world that encourages us to avoid and bury what makes us twitch, but we are rarely better for it. That was Kate Andrews. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week. Mm -hmm.